We recently observed the 50th anniversary of Pope St. Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae, and this year marks the 40th anniversary since the beginning of Pope St. John Paul II's Wednesday audiences that are collectively known as Theology of the Body. How are these two teachings connected, and what do they have to say to Catholics today? Join us as we explore those questions and more with Dr. Mikhail Waldstein, translator of the English edition of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, Man and Woman, He Created Them. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, professor of catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a professor of catechetics here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking about theology of the body and humanae vitae. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization here at Franciscan. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Dr. Mikhail Waldstein. Dr. Waldstein is a distinguished fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a Franciscan University theology professor. He holds a PhD from the University of Dallas, an SSL from the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome, and a THD from Harvard University in the New Testament and Christian origins. Dr. Waldstein taught at the University of Notre Dame before serving as the founding president of the International Theological Institute in Austria. He also served as a member of the Pontifical Council for the Family from 2003 to 2009. Pertinent to today's discussion, he translated John Paul II's Theology of the Body into English. But before we delve into that topic, let's start about a decade earlier with Humane Vitae. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you Thank here. Thank you, Bob. So why don't we just start off, uh, tell us a little bit about what Humane Vitae was about. Humane Vitae reaffirmed a teaching that had been constant in the Catholic tradition against contraception. The immediate occasion, or the necessity for it, was the invention of the pill Hmm. which in some ways seemed different from other means of contraception. A condom, for example, really impedes the conjugal act, whereas the pill seems in some way like imitating the natural rhythm of the woman. Hmm. Um, Paul VI was never in doubt about the question. It was a question for him how best to put it in the context in which the question was raised. That context is important. Um, it's in the 60s, the late 60s, were the heyday of belief in progress, that technology would make our life better all the way around. And contraception and the invention of the pill in particular was thought to be a high point, an, an achievement, mm. somewhat like antibiotics. Um, that was the atmosphere, 
And so many people who wanted to align themselves more with modernity felt this was a decisive step for the church to take, somewhat like the green card uh, to enter the land of modernity and begin working in mm -hmm. it to say yes to contraception. That was the expectation. And he uh, didn't live up to those particular he expectations. didn't live up to those expectations and, and maybe there was a certain amount of deception that also that went on um, where uh, both ecclesiastics and theologians generated the expectation mm -hmm. that the teaching would change to put pressure on Paul VI. The majority report of the commission appointed to discuss this question came out in favor mm. of contraception, and that majority report was published contrary to the oaths that the participants had taken. Um, There's another way of putting pressure on Paul VI, uh, but he, for him, it had been clear yeah. from the beginning. It was a question of how to put it best in a way that's understandable to people in our age. Yeah. That, that sense of expectancy that things would change for the better, the fact that Paul resisted that, I think, is such a testimony to his heroism. Mm -hmm. He was clear about the doctrine. It can't change. Yeah. It's, it's unalterable. But he felt the pressure. And in his own psyche, there was a certain Hamlet uh, uh, temperament, uh, which he had to overcome, and he did decisively. He held fast to the constant teaching, and that really is a witness uh, to his, his, his heroic sanctity. Yeah. You know, there's a, a sense of delay, though, that uh, we have to recognize that in, intensified the drama. Yeah. You know, so Vatican II ended in 1965, and Humanae Vitae came out in 1968, and that that birth control commission had been formed almost immediately after Vatican II because the documents of Vatican II didn't address this issue directly by design so that it could receive more careful attention. And some of the members of that not only formed a majority, but they also were massive theologians. I mean, scholars like Bernard Herring and Fuchs and others too. And of course, Charles Curran wasn't on the commission, but he was Herring's student at Catholic U and a darling of the media as well as uh, the, 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 the new generation of Catholic theologians, the sort of young Turks who were coming up, intent upon changing things. And before he became Paul VI, Montini had been perceived by all as a moderate. And so he was ideally suited, you know, situated to kind of adjust the teaching according to all of every, the majority report's expectations. But he didn't do that, but he also didn't act quickly. He did act heroically, right. that's for right. certain. Yeah. But I mean, 1966, 67, and 68, and, and by the time it finally was released in the middle of the year of 1968, you know, the pressure had mounted, uh, and the media was conspiring with the scholars and the, and the ecclesiastics and so on. And, and so to read about that drama makes me grateful that I was a Protestant kid <laughs> at the time it was taking place. It, it may have been a tactical uh, misjudgment, I, I think, on his part, not to have dissolved the commission, but I mean, that's being a Monday morning quarterback. But, but you mentioned uh, early on that what Paul did was to reaffirm a constant Catholic teaching, constant but at the same Catholic time, teaching. until 1930, it had been universal among all Christian peoples. So he was going against the age, contra uh, uh, mundum, uh, and he did it. And we forget that so easily because now 
in the present time, it's a matter of course. Yeah. Of course, anybody who is somewhat enlightened and in control of their lives will right. use contraception. It's like uh, taking something against the cold. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How does one overcome uh, that uh, that uh, fixation? It seems to me that the fundamental question is our relationship to nature. Yeah. It's interesting that in the majority report, which was published against um, promises, among the various reasons given for the legitimacy of contraception, the one that's called most of all a reason is the duty to humanize nature yeah. by technical control yeah. of nature. This was the time I remember my mother, for example, um, being persuaded by her pediatrician that it was much superior to use formula rather right, than right. Um, mother's milk yeah. because it was scientifically formulated and the scientists knew what they were talking about. So that background atmosphere mm. is extremely important, I think, to see where the pressure came from. Of course, it also comes from the great availability of sexual intercourse between husband and wife. Uh, it's difficult to abstain, mm -hmm. uh, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, but intellectually, the, the groundswell came from the technological, scientific uh, yeah. mindset. Yeah. yeah, and the irony, I, I think, the crowning irony of, of the whole business is that in liberating a man from nature, uh, you are suppressing man. I mean, to take a pill, you are really suppressing a perfectly natural biochemical process, ovulation. It, it's a form of self-hatred, as if you're saying, you know, there's really something wrong with my body, and I, I've got to uh, obliterate this particular capacity to co-create. Yes, very often, the, a parallel is drawn between contraception and antibiotics. Yeah. Because in a certain way, you have little organisms that are knocked out or... Yeah. Um, but the difference is obvious in the case of uh, antibiotic, you're attacking an attacker. Right. In the case of contraception, yeah. yourself. What about, um, you, maybe you can explain a little bit against another argument that's often heard about contraception, which is to say, well, you know, if I don't have sex with my wife, you know, that's a kind of birth control, you know, that I'm, I'm you know, not engaging in this act. So, you know, what does it matter if, we're, if we don't feel like it's an appropriate time for us to have life right now? Why wouldn't that be acceptable? That discussion is made more difficult by the Italian text of Humana Vitae, which says that a conjugal act must remain open to the generation of new life. And so openness, especially then when it's widened to mean openness to children in general, rather right. than the openness of the act, that has become the dominant term. The Latin text, which is the authoritative text of Humana Vitae, says that each marriage act must remain through itself destinatus, destined or ordered yeah. to the end of procreation, which is much more precise and specific. It doesn't talk about openness. So 
the issue in contraception is making an act that would otherwise be fertile, infertile. Mm -hmm. And that you don't do by abstaining. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, there's a, a confusion that has settled upon most of the West for many centuries, and you're familiar with this, and that is what the meaning of nature is, right? You know, because I think we tend to assume that natural law and the laws of nature are really two ways of saying the same thing. Whereas the laws of nature are an, that's an enlightenment idea that is directed towards inanimate beings, whether they're subatomic particles or galaxies. So the law of gravity, electricity, magnetism, these are the laws of nature. Whereas natural law in the classical sense of antiquity was always specified with regard to human nature. Yeah. Because human nature is different than asteroids and subatomic particles. Human nature is body and soul, but the soul is also intellect and will. So you have to know what is true in order to choose what is good in order for the soul to govern the body towards fulfillment, perfection, and happiness. And so what's the difference between contraception and, say, air conditioning? What's the difference between <laughs> contraception and shaving? You know, these things are unnatural. But yeah, only when you consider nature in the broadest sense of what we share in common with impersonal objects. But when you look at natural law, which is always pertaining to the human person, then you realize that a sneeze is not the same as contraception. Dogs sneeze, we do too, but we think about what is true and choose what is good in order to perfect ourselves, not by instinct, but by reason. Yeah. And once you clarify that, well, you've lost most all of the West, you know, yeah. because we're so wedded to science yeah. and to this view of nature that is meant to be manipulated for our comfort and convenience. But when you clarify what natural law is, then you can move on to the values of the person, the unitive and the procreative, how the two become one and that one becomes a child yeah. and all of that beautiful stuff. But man, you gotta go back to elementary right. school to clarify. Well, this misunderstanding that, that you speak of is pretty widespread, but there yeah. is a villain in the piece that I, I would uh, uh, assign a, a responsibility for to a chap by the name of August Comte, uh, who, is, is, who is, I think, widely uh, uh, viewed as the father of sociology. And what he does is simply to apply the laws of physics to human society, those abstract, unalterable laws that we infer from the movement of the heavens and just impose that on human beings. We're, we're just matter in motion, yeah. uh, as, not, as Marx would say. It, it, it seems to me good, as you do in your book, Politicizing the Bible, I think brilliantly, show the origins of this way of looking at nature as below the person uh, the origin lies in the ambition for power over nature. Yeah. In the scientific revolution, a new orientation of knowledge yeah. was sought. Francis Bacon and Descartes are the clearest on this, that knowledge, our knowledge of nature should seek the kind of thing that will give us power over nature to improve prove the human condition. Now, once you make that choice, yeah. inevitably, the science of mechanics, which the ancients knew about, becomes the dominant science.
And it is a mathematical science, that is what you're trying to find is mathematical laws that will then allow you to push the right lever to right, gain yeah. power over nature. And mathematics, as a matter of principle, can't talk about beauty, goodness, right. life, right. personhood. All of that is excluded. And so the so-called natural world becomes a click-click-click mechanism that is really below us. It's like a bicycle that we ride. That we ride. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a lot more to talk about, and so please... Stay with us as we continue Franciscan University Presents. Ultimately, Humanae Vitae is about love, love between a man and a woman and the love of God. Marriage, the sexual act, is for two purposes, the procreative and the unitive purpose. When a couple contracepts, the couple blocks half of the purpose of marriage. They block the procreative aspect. So then the sexual act becomes not about love, but about use. One of the things Pope Paul VI warned would happen if contraception became widespread is that women would be viewed more as objects from the point of view of men. And we've seen that happen, especially through pornography. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about theology of the body and humane vitae with our guest, Dr. Mikhail Waldstein. Um, as we're talking about humane vitae, uh, you know, we talked about the pressures going into writing the document, but uh, St. Paul VI with heroic virtue stayed firm to the church's teaching. How was the reception of it afterwards? I think it helps to see that the question of contraception is not just one among many moral issues, but many threads, many questions of our age come together with it. If the fundamental commandment that we're given by Jesus is the commandment of love, then you can see immediately how the questions of love between man and woman are right at the heart of Christian life. So it immediately for that reason, became a major battleground with many ramifications. Many theologians were absolutely convinced that the spirit of Vatican II required aggiornamento, that is updating, mm -hmm. to fall in with faith in progress, um, assent to technology, Cardinal Suenens at the council, for example, said, let's not have a second Galileo affair. Yeah. Yeah. And rejecting contraception would be a second Galileo affair, that is, a wholesale rejection of scientific knowledge, of technology, of the mm -hmm. modern age. So 
before the encyclical was published, resistance against it had been organized on a grand scale with the press. Charles Curran, Professor Charles Curran, played a great role in that. And it was really overwhelmed by a press campaign against it. Uh, one of the most dramatic spectacles, I think, in, in recent history of a people pronouncement coming out and that machinery bearing down on it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, which created a kind of double magisterium. You have that stale old guy in Rome, you know, pronouncing uh, these uh, hoary platitudes, but in America, which looks to the future, right. somehow enamored of this myth of progress, uh, we're, we're stepping up and doing the right thing, and we honor technology. And one of the difficulties was that some of the bishops' conferences, Germany, Austria, Holland, to some degree also here in North America, were ambiguous in their reception of Humana Vitae and built little back doors of yeah. freedom of conscience. Of course, we have to obey our conscience. There's no question about that. We have to obey our conscience, even when our conscience is mistaken. Um, but that didn't help. Right, yeah. It isolated Paul VI yeah. even more, yeah. not only from theologians, from many of his fellow bishops. Yeah. You put your finger on the issue, though, that really comes up in the confessional at that time and still today, and that is follow your conscience. Because the moral obligation to abide by your conscience as a subjective norm is true and universal. But the prior obligation, before you follow your conscience, you're morally obliged to form your conscience. Exactly. Yeah. And to form your conscience according to the Word of God, which always builds upon the light of human reason, but it can also take us beyond that, too. You know, I think that was what was forgotten. And let's admit it, that there was a, a period of time in the 60s into the 70s where theologically we were in a sort of slump. I remember the Pittsburgh Pirates not having a, a, <laughs> sea, a winning season for yeah. 20 years. You know, <laughs> there were about 20 years where the Dominicans especially were in a kind of slump, where there weren't really solid Thomistic theologians stepping forward and saying, I mean, there were some, but their voices were muted. But as you said, the resistance was organized. I mean, you don't have to be labeling yourself a conspiratorialist to identify the conspiracy that takes place in the reception of Humanae Vitae, because the sequestered copy of the, of the encyclical was actually circulated widely and sent from Rome to Washington, D.C., where Father Charles Curran organized this press conference on the, on the steps of Catholic University with over 200 theologians, most of whom were priests, and even the lay theologians right. felt the academic pressure, like the late, great Bill May, to yeah. capitulate. Yeah. And the, the few souls like Monsignor Eugene Cavan were tormented and basically, you know, excommunicated because they resisted this dissent, right. you know. But all of that played out in the media because it was a conspiracy of the academy, the media, as well as the ecclesiastical paralysis right. that set in yeah. for so many bishops and really for the conference too, the national conference. But where it really played out most dramatically, I, I, I suspect, was the confessional, yeah. where, where people were coming to priests who had been conditioned for two or three years after Vatican II to say, just hold your breath, just you wait, Follow your conscience in the meantime, but it'll change. And it didn't. 
Hmm. And what happened, I think, in the confessional is that that sort of advice didn't change. Just follow your conscience. And it also had a massive seismic effect in the Catholic Medical Association. You had over 10,000 members in the early 60s. And then after this decision and the, and the internal decision to kind of abide by this magisterial teaching, it dwindled down to the thousands to the hundreds. Mm. You know? And so the medical profession, made up of so many Catholic doctors, just simply backed off yeah. loyalty to the church and for their professional reputations. And so across the board, right. we lost you know, every season from the late 60s into the early 70s. And we got to remember that the summer of 68 was a hot broiling time. Right. Riots in Europe, right. assassinations here, you know, riots in the cities of America as well. I mean, it really was like the devil was just simply let out to play. Right. And boy, did he do it. And, and of course, uh, with contraception, you then have an open door on abortion. Right. When the pill fails to function, uh, you have this backup method called killing the child. Yeah. I mean, th this discussion. Which Paul the sixth predicted. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this this uh, discussion you're having about uh, conscience. I mean, that was the great anthem, the mantra: just follow your conscience. But always, it has to be informed by the truth. That's right. That should flood the mind. But yeah. it was informed. It was informed by what we call the zeitgeist, the yes. spirit of the age. That's the point. And you. What you said about the doctors, I think, is very revealing. Their intellectual training, of course, is in natural science. And the pill came on the scene as administered, yeah. not in sex shops, as, yeah. but in white coats by the doctors yeah. whose professional honor was invested yeah. in that. So that membership would collapse is highly assisted. I should insert that the Catholic Medical Association, like the Pirates, made a great comeback. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I the mean, damage was done. Indeed, at the most strategic yeah. time, too. Right. And it wasn't, just, uh, it wasn't just abortion. You could also make the argument towards homosexuality. Yeah. You know, if, if we can be sexually active in some kind of unitive capacity, but not ever needing to be open to life, you really also lose the argument, not just of contraception, but why can't right. a woman and a woman or a man and a man right, be right. sexually active if we're just, you know, expressing our emotions and trying to bond with each right. other. Right. I mean, or, I mean let's, let's push it to the reductio ad absurdum. If you shatter the unity of sex, love, and life, that natural trinity, then you, you, you can proceed with impunity. Anything, anything is uh, permissible. So. Many bishops were against it, many theologians were against it. One who wasn't was Carol Wojtyla, and actually wrote a very profound letter to Paul VI encouraging uh, this writing. Ten years later, after Humanae Vitae, he becomes John Paul II, Pope John, uh, John Paul II, and he begins in a series of Wednesday audiences, uh, something that would become known as Theology of the Body, which of course you uh, were able to translate. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that and particularly how what John Paul II was saying in Theology of the Body was connected to Humanae Vitae, what Paul VI was writing about? When Karol Wojtyla was a young priest, he says this in Crossing the Threshold of mm. Hope in that autobiographic work on page one, two, three, it's easy to remember, <laughs> 123, that as a young priest, he fell in love with love between man and woman, because love is beautiful. And the one who has seen the beauty of love, he says, 
wants to devote himself wholeheartedly to Totus Tuus, wholeheartedly to the service of beautiful love. Uh, Mother of Beautiful Love is one of the titles of Mary that's particularly dear to John Paul. So from early on, he had an interest in what is it that makes for the full beauty, the full splendor of love. Parallel with that, he had a strong sensibility for human experience, partly, I think, heightened by his reading early on, that was the first major influence on him, of the writings of St. John of the Cross, who was the great master of Christian experience. What is it actually like to live a Christian life consciously? Now, those two things are extremely powerful. That is a perception of beauty, the beauty of love, and attention to experience so that you can find ways of verifying the beauty of love or its modes of sickness when, when, when it becomes defective. Mm. That's the soil from which the theology of the body grew. It's therefore not surprising that when the debate about contraception exploded, already before, long before Humanevite, in Love and Responsibility, he treated the subject very deeply. And then in the theology of the body, he unfolded the issue on a large scale, in a large fresco, not simply focusing on the moral argument, mm -hmm. philosophical and theological moral argument, the tradition of the church, etc., but setting it into a spiritual context. Yeah. Um, and for him, in particular, reverence is one of the central animating principles of the life of husband and wife, that is the realization that in dealing with sexuality, we deal with something that has descended from above. It's not simply a mechanism from below that happens to have mm -hmm. evolved the way it did, but it comes from the God who is love, it's supposed to reflect the God who is love, the beauty of the God who is love, and therefore deserves reverence. Oh. That's the only point of view existentially from which one can make sense, really, of humanevite and make it one's own. Yeah. One can argue until one is blue in the face with theologians, and they might even concede arguments, but unless that position of reverence is there, it won't take. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, uh, a lot of my work has been in youth ministry. And so, uh, you know, often we talk to young people about chastity. And yet, Theology of the Body came about and it, it changed the conversation. This was certainly my experience as someone working with young people. Yeah. That it, it wasn't just about you should save sex for marriage, right? You know, or you shouldn't look at pornography or you shouldn't be engaged in these other sexual acts. But what John Paul II did is, I mean, maybe you can explain it better, but um, 
he was giving a, a deeper reasoning behind. He was giving us a language with which to understand. Even just the idea of uh, seeing God in our bodies, yeah. um, you know, being created in His image. Yeah, he wasn't moralizing it. Uh, it, it had to do with vision. Yes. It had to do with uh, metaphysics. Whom do you see in the Beloved? You, you see an image of the eternal thou. And God Himself looks at us with a kind of reverence as well. He sees His image, an image that has been rescued and redeemed by His Son. So human beings are not to be reduced to the status of things. We don't objectify the other. We reverence her. Yeah, we love people but use things. And right. we will talk about that more when we get back to Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Last semester, I had the opportunity to take a Theology of the Body class at Franciscan University's Study Abroad program in Austria. And traveling around Europe and seeing all the art, I was especially struck by Michelangelo's Creation of Man. And that painting on the uh, ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was specifically mentioned by John Paul II as being a sort of prototype to the theology of the body in the way that it demonstrates the way God relates to Adam and Adam relates to Eve. One insight that I've taken from John Paul II's Theology of the Body is the complementarity between men and women. So men and women both image God um, because we're human, and yet we image God in different ways. So in general, women image God in their nurturing, and in general, men image God in their protectiveness. Um, and that's been really healing in my own life and um, something that I've really taken to heart. You don't have to trade top-flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real-world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, and we're coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment, and my colleagues in the Theology Department, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding our discussion with our special guest, Dr. Mikhail Waldstein who also teaches theology here at Franciscan University. Before the break, we were talking about how uh, what John Paul II was doing in Theology of the Body is he was approaching a subject that was often seen as a negative. Uh, you know, you should not have sex, and even Humanae Vitae, you should not use birth control. But he shifted that into a positive, into a deeper understanding of how God works through our human sexuality. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, Christian ethics is fundamentally positive. If you look at the Gospels, it's the commandment of love, the way Augustine formulates it, love and then do what you want. Mm. Yeah. That's fundamentally positive. So what John Paul did, I think, is align the way of talking about sexual morality with the overall shape of Christian morality. It's easy to see why it could be bent out of shape a little bit, because the sexual passion is extremely powerful. 
think everybody experiences difficulties in that area. It's in some ways like riding a very fiery horse. Uh, teachers of horsemanship say, if a horse throws you, get right back on it again. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll be consumed by fear. Hmm. And John Paul, not getting right back on it again in the sense of <laughs> sinning again right, right away, but uh, of course not, but that the positive relationship of human sexuality is something created by God, reflecting the life of God himself. That should be the dominant mode of looking. Part of the difficulty is that we, due to the fact that we tend in this area particularly to fail, many people think of it as dirty. Yeah. And that's a great obstacle because dirty and beauty, they, they, they don't go together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was the uh, the great Victorian hang-up that sex is the dirty little secret about which maybe we can whisper, but we ought not to speak aloud about uh, its uh, defilement. And that hangover, that residue, has certainly survived uh, uh, into this postmodern age, despite the fact that people are always obsessed by sex, preoccupied with sex, but in a way they don't really think about sex. Sex is about the gift of yourself to another person. And that's, that's dynamite, that's explosive. I mean, Augustine is spot on. Love is my gravitation. Where it goes, I too must follow. And, and eros is something consuming, which is why reason needs to regulate it uh, in, in the light of, of, uh, of revelation, grace. What John Paul did, I think, was not only profound, but really exciting and accessible. I remember my own experience as a Protestant pastor in the early 80s. I was preaching scripture, but then you'd have to sit down and do pastoral counseling. And it was never about what do these passages mean, it's how do I keep these couples together? <laughs> because the yeah. power of Eros was disintegrating you know, in a disordered sort of way. And so when I left the pastorate and I began to explore Catholic theology, I, 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 I latched onto what was then not known as the theology of the body, but simply the Wednesday audiences. I was enrolled in a doctoral program at an unnamed university not far from Steubenville, <laughs> where almost all of my professors were former priests. And without an exception, they dissented with, from the church's teaching on Humanae Vitae. So there I was in, in 84 and 85, the only Protestant in these graduate seminars defending John Paul. <laughs> wow. you know, right, and, right. and then re reading Humanae Vitae and recognizing that there was a scientific revolution going on in Catholic theology that was so much more constructive and exciting than yeah. the other revolution that was going on with technology. You know, going back to 1930, I read Pope Pius XI's Canubi on Christian marriage. He had already begun to combine the natural law assessment that the primary end of marriage is the procreation education of offspring with the second. But he also brought in Augustine, the three goods of marriage, proles, fides, and sacramentum, you know, the offspring and the fidelity and the indissoluble bond of love. And it was just like, this is powerful. And then to couple that with humanae vitae, 
the inseparability of the unitive meaning of the marital act with the procreative, that you become one, but you're open to that oneness becoming incarnate in a child. And then to pick up L'Observatore Romano week after week in the, in the library and just begin to photocopy these things over the course of two, three, four, five years. When I finally, when I finally transferred to Marquette University, the Daughters of St. Paul had begun to release those volumes, the original Unity of Man and a Woman, Blessed are the Pure in Heart. Mm. You know, it was like gold, it was more like diamonds, you know, in the sense that, you know, th this was making sense out of scripture because that's what John Paul did. He introduced a kind of biblical theology of human sexuality and marital love and it's like my brain was exploding, but it was also my heart. I mean, and so I find that your work in translating this and explicating it for ordinary people, along with people like Christopher West and others, you know, it is such a powerful counterforce to the cultural toxins that we find in the aftermath of the sexual revolution. Yeah. And it's remarkably effective. I took a sabbatical at Notre Dame when I was in Austria for a year, and it was in 2002, and there ran into a group of undergraduates who had been touched by Christopher West's communication of the theology of the body, and their lives had been transformed. Yeah. Uh, I, I was amazed, so I invited myself to Christopher West's home. <laughs> I didn't know him, and in Austria he wasn't known, but who is this man who can can do this. And we spent some days together and became friends. Yeah, the theology of the body has, exactly because of that positivity, the constructive way in which it comes at the questions, as you say, has an immense power to change lives. That's right. I mean, human nature is what? Human person is who? You know, and so when you can decode the natural law and the binding norms against contraception and show that it is only the inner logic of love that really illuminates and unites the church's teaching in all of these controversial areas, it becomes a magnetic force to attract people. You know, and people like Jason Evert, as well as Dr. Ted Sri, and I mean, the number now is legion. So many young Catholics have latched onto right. the theology of the body. That's the wrong word. They have embraced this, you know, and they have been on a mission. Been embraced by it. Embraced <laughs> by it. I mean, I was, and it wasn't just a conceptual theoretical yeah. thing. It also impacted our marriage and our love yeah. and our family and our kids. You know, Kimberly's first conversion was on Humanae Vitae. Wow. And then that was intensified by her discovery of the theology of the body as well. Yeah. And just looking at the body as a, a sort of sacrament of the person, an effective sign of love, mm. that you're not just performing an act, you're giving yourself. And nobody in history opened that up like John Paul the Great or St. John Paul. Yeah, right. He was a, an extraordinary figure, uh, I, I think, and what a blessing to have known him. Uh, as, as you certainly have, and I had uh, occasional encounters with him. I remember, in fact, the first we time went together right, to right. an audience, a people and audience. met him. A people audience. That's right. And yes, him. and we were both spellbound. And I don't know about you, but I was rendered mute. I was yeah. completely silent. What wow. do you say that was when a you meet? That was a miracle, <laughs> right? Yeah. I've, I've since compensated uh, for that. Yeah. You know, there's a passage that springs to mind: uh, a letter that Karavatiwa wrote to his friend Henri de Lubac, 
back in 1968. And he said, there's a crisis that has confronted the church. And the way to view it is not in moral terms, but metaphysical terms. It has to do with the disintegration and degradation of the unique human being. And the only way to overcome this crisis is not through sterile argument, but through what he called a recapitulation of the mystery of the human person. And that is exactly set forth in the unity of man and woman, the theology of the body. One condensed way of putting it is What is it that I slap when I slap myself? It's the person. I don't slap an organism within which a soul dwells like a ghost in a machine. But this is is I. The body has the dignity, the beauty, the depth of the person. I am the body I possess. (laughs) Right. You know, as we look at Cardinal Wojtyla writing a letter to Pope Paul VI in 1969, about which we knew nothing until recently, you know, he was pointing out with profound gentleness his gratitude and his agreement, but also the fact that, you know, bishops, including the Bishop of Rome, don't just educate, they also have to govern. So there has to be a pastoral plan to implement this. Mm. And a year later, it had become apparent by 1969 that there wasn't much implementation. In fact, there was hardly any sort of pushback against all of the dissent. And so he proposed not just arguments, but plans to to make this really gain traction, to go out there into the church and make a difference. You know, ironically, and I would say unfortunately, it was only published in L'Observatore Romano, the official Vatican newspaper. It wasn't actually implemented. You know, but 10 years later, the hand of providence guides Cardinal Wojtyla to become Pope John Paul II. And as you've discovered and shown us, he was already working on the manuscript of the theology of the body, not because he anticipated becoming Pope, but because he recognized the need to explain more deeply, more practically, and more profoundly in personalistic and biblical terms what this teaching really can do in liberating human couples and and families. And the, the, the fact that he would begin then, almost immediately after coming into office in 78, to do this teaching Wednesday audit, week after week after week, for years until about 1985. Yeah. Yep, five years he, he spent on it yeah. with a holy year intermission. And, and right. all of it is pursuant, I think, to this overarching theme of his pontificate. Be not afraid. I mean, yeah. Look to love. Eros can be very instructive. Divine Eros. Let that be the dynamism that guides you through the mystery of human uh, sexual love. Indeed. Well, uh, up next, our panel and guest will have their final thoughts on today's topic, so please stay with us. I remember being told that it's called theology of the body, not just theology of sex, which means that it doesn't just apply once I'm married or if I have a boyfriend, but right now. And one way is just by taking care of my body and seeing it as beautiful and dignified right now in the way that I exercise and in the way that I dress and the way that I even think of myself. And that's been really helpful and encouraging. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. 
Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, would you start us off with your thoughts? Yeah, I think we're under the gun. There's a, a shortage of time, so let me be brief. <laughs> uh, brevity is the soul of wit. So, And I want to hear more from you, uh, Mikhail. But first, let me thank you uh, for all that you've done, uh, not just uh, in terms of this document, but in terms of people's lives, my own in particular. You introduced me. Uh, to Hansers von Balthasar, uh, and my life would have been very different if I hadn't been so completely captivated by his, his thought. So thank you for that. You're a bird of paradise. Uh, the only comment I, I would make is a, is a paraphrase from a wonderful little essay that G.K. Chesterton wrote called In Defense of Rash Vows. And he begins with the modern myth that somehow marriage is a yoke that the devil imposes upon couples, when in fact it's a yoke that couples themselves impose. And the church simply takes the couple at its word uh, and, and plants that word in the skies and says, this is really the highest moment of your life when you burn all of your bridges and you give yourself completely to another person. And to make that work requires a kind of dedication a consecration of your whole life. You see in this other person a, a hint, an intimation of the divine person. I mean, I, I think of, of Dante when he stumbles upon Beatrice on the streets of Florence. Uh, he, he thinks that some dreadful perfection is now walking towards him, and it completely beguiles him. His whole life is, is, is turned upside down by this sudden evocation of, of eternity. Th this is the bliss that we have been promised on the other side, and this is just a kind of uh, prefiguration of it. And the, the theology of the body captures that, preserves that beatrician moment, and makes it last as long as the couple themselves are willing to work at it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the theology of the body for, for me, for us, Kimberly and me, you know, the, the culture says that the Catholic Church is hung up on sex. I would say the church is hung up on love. The culture is hung up on sex. And then what the church is teaching is not that we we love too much when we have this sort of, you know, uh, unfaithful, disordered sex. It's that we love too little. That the only logic that illuminates what sexuality is about is love. And love is sacrificial. Love is self-giving. And love requires a degree of, of self-mastery. But I, I do think that back in the 80s, something was bequeathed to the church by more than a man. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying it's inspired on the level of scripture, but the theology of the body for a friend of mine who is now deceased, Deacon Ken Baldwin, who I think could almost be canonized, he became one of the earliest translators of the theology of the body in youth ministry. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a deacon yet, but he was, he became sort of a feeder for Franciscan University. You know, dozens and dozens of the students in high school he had in youth group, you know, would come here 
after the summer conferences, having experienced this, this really lively catechetics from this youth minister, but he was living it out in his marriage as well. You know, and it was so compelling. I've met so many over the years who were like, yeah, you know, but it, it, he was like a, a lone voice. Now, you know, it's a choir of people who are singing this sort of song. And I would say, we still don't have enough members in the choir. You know, we have to grow this. And the next generation that's coming up, the millennials and beyond, if, if we needed it back in the 70s and 80s, we don't need it less. We need it much more, much, much more. And so for youth pastors, you know, well, we don't want to talk about the pelvic issues. Well, of course not. But we all want to talk about love, and we want to grow and learn what love requires in order for it to be true. Just like we don't want to slake people's thirst with salt water, which will dry them up and kill them. So we don't want to slake their thirst for love by allowing them to live lies with their bodies. And so I would say your work, especially the translation and the introduction, it's like a hundred page introduction. Man and woman, he created them. Is that the title? That is, you know, uh, that is rich fare. And so I thank you for doing that work and for making it available. But thank God also for Pope St. John Paul II. Yeah. Amen. Thank God for him. As both of you said, it's also true for me, that contact with the theology of the body was a transforming experience. We already had six children. We thought of ourselves as an experienced couple. We had thought about marriage and studied marriage. But when both of us, my wife and I, studied the theology of the body, it was in some ways like a new honeymoon. Hmm. Uh, it made us aware of deep sources of joy in our life that we hadn't really attended to. Now, of course, married life has its ups and downs, and the grayness of everyday life often covers, it's, it's like a mountain tour, when, you, when you're in the mountains, suddenly the fog can come in and you don't know where you're going, and it can be very disorienting. But as the great spiritual masters, whom John Paul studied, especially John of the Cross, say, those moments of darkness, of blindness, have their own importance because if you stay with love, a spring will come back. And mm -hmm. it's our experience, the experience of many people, that it does. So I think one should be encouraged and not think of the theology of the body as a rosy picture yeah. that um, makes everything perfect. Suffering and the cross is going to be there, but it deepens the, the joy in the end. Yeah. yeah, amen. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your work and for being with us today. And if you want to learn more about today's topic, we have a handout for you. It's an essay written by Dr. Waldstein on John Paul II's clarification of Humanae Vitae in his Theology of the Body. This is yours for free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. My final thoughts on today's topic, you know, uh, in 2018 we had a synod on youth, the faith, and vocational discernment. 
And uh, for so many young people, and, and many young adults particularly, have really embraced and been blessed and transformed you know, by theology of the body, whether it's conferences, speeches, the writings themselves. And truly understanding this, this gift that St. John Paul II gave us, has to be at the heart of our understanding of our own vocation, you know, who we are before we can give ourselves away. Not just in married life, but for those that might be discerning, um, you know, celibacy, discerning religious life, uh, discerning holy orders. And that real beauty of the positiveness, the focus on the love, you know, it's not, you know, as many particularly young people perceive the church's teaching on sexuality as restrictive, it is in fact life-giving. Mm. You know, as Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, yeah. but I have come that you might have life to the full. And I think in a very profound way for this generation, uh, that is the message of theology of the body that continues to ring true today. I want to invite you to be part of Franciscan University of Steubenville and join us in our mission to educate, evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples to restore all things in Christ. Maybe you can enroll in one of our education programs and get your degree here on campus or from one of our online programs. Another way to connect through Franciscan University is through our life-changing summer conferences for adults and for youth that are offered in 13 locations across the United States and in Canada. Or you could travel with us on one of our pilgrimages to holy shrines in Italy, Poland, the Holy Land, and other sacred destinations around the world. Remember, go to faithandreason.com for today's handout and to watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, as well as watch hundreds of talks that will inspire and inform your faith. And so let's consecrate this entire conversation uh, to our Blessed Mother. Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is, is with thee. thee. Blessed, blessed art thou among women, women, and blessed, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.